Well, congregation, it is good once again to open up God's Word. This morning, we are still technically in mourning. Uh, got three more minutes left until noon. So it's been a blessing to um, open up God's Word, not once, but twice. We, um, at Sentinella, we have uh, one worship service, and then we have a Sabbath school hour, which means for myself, there's only one sermon every Lord's Day. So it's always a blessing to visit sister churches, especially here in Palmdale, where we get to hear two sermons every Lord's Day. I actually, to be honest with you, and I think my congregation knows this, I would prefer that. Uh, right now, we are providentially hindered from having multiple services, uh, specifically preaching services. So Lord willing, in the future, we can have two, uh, two sermons like you guys have the privilege of receiving this Lord's Day and every Lord's Day. So let's jump in the Word of God one more time. Uh, we're going to consider, once again, Micah chapter 6, verse 8. Um, the, the opening sermon, we very briefly considered um, the opening few words in this text with regards to what God has shown us to be good. And we emphasized uh, the goodness revealed to us uh, in, in creation, God's law, and ultimately in the redemption of His Son, thereby showing us and us concluding, as those made in his image, that God is good, that he is good, and he does good, as the psalmist says. And in light of the revelation that we have in creation, in providence, the way of his law, redemption, etc., we are uh, called to live accordingly. We are called to live a particular way. As Micah refers to this way of living in uh, verse six, eight, we will, uh, chapter six, verse eight, we will notice that essentially what is being said here is a summary of the first and second table of the law with regards to man's obligation before God. One more time, the reading of the text in Micah chapter six, verse eight. Here once again, the word of the Lord. He has shown you, O man, what is good. And what does the Lord require of you but to do justly, to love mercy, and to walk humbly with your God? So again, we have this uh, second exhortation this morning now concerning man's obligation before God in light of God's revelation to man. This afternoon, we will have three points with regards to what God requires of man, and these come again right out of the text in Micah 6. First, this, by way of these requirements, we see from the text that God has called man, he has called us to do justly. That is first, he has called us to do justly. Second, he has called us to love mercy. We see in the text that man is called by God to love mercy. And finally, we see in that closing part of this text that he has called us to walk humbly before him. So we're going to consider these points and close with some contemplation for this Lord's Day. So again, briefly to summarize this morning's message, 
God has shown man that which is good. He demonstrates by way of his law. He demonstrates by creation. He demonstrates by the redemption that is found only in the Lord Jesus Christ that he is good. He is infinitely good. He is, as we sing, the fount of every blessing, the infinite benefactor. He is the one that shows forth his goodness time and time again. And congregation, in light of this revelation, in light of who God has shown us he is to be, in light of his creation, and in light of what he has done for us in the person and work of Jesus Christ, we are to live a particular way. That is the point. That is the main point this afternoon. He has, shows, he has shown us not only that he is good, not only what is good, but he has shown us that which is good and that which we are to walk in. In light of this revelation, we now move on to the requirements of man. What does God require of us today? Fortunately, congregation, the answer to this question is very, very, very simple. It doesn't require us to uh, know the, the languages and the scriptures. It doesn't require us to do a ton of exegetical work. We don't need to have a ton of commentaries to conclude this answer. It's actually quite simple. The word of God tells us that God calls us to be imitators of him. God shows us what is good. He shows us that he is good and commands us that we are to be like him. We are to be good. He calls us to goodness. That is our purpose, to be imitators of him. And this imitation ultimately is elaborated in three ways by way of our text. So for the first way, he has called us to do justly. This question in Micah 6.8 is first answered with the call to be like God in that we are to be like him with regards to justice. With regards to justice, just as we concluded this morning that goodness is in God and therefore God is good, we likewise say the same thing about justice. Justice is in God, therefore God is just. He is a source of justice. He's a standard of justice. There's no justice outside of God. This is necessary for us to know, congregation. This is necessary for us to, uh, to remind ourselves because the reality is we live in a fallen world where, where we look outside and we see all kinds of proclaimed, self-proclaimed justice, which ultimately, as all the worldly quote-unquote justice is outside of Christ, it shows itself to be perverted, it shows itself to be latent with sin. Again, first and foremost, we need to, we need to remind ourselves, we need to understand what justice is, that we may understand what it means to do justly. In light of a fallen world, in light of a world tainted by sin. Thankfully, God gives us a standard of justice, and that is Himself. Like the revelation of His goodness. We can understand justice with regards to God in a few ways, just like we did with goodness. First, by way of his law. To do justly is to walk in obedience to his law. 
That is the most basic definition we really need. To do justly. God calls us to do justly. We are to walk according to his law. In obedience to his holy law. This is true for both the believer and the unbeliever. And it's in both of their best interests to do so. Again, as the scriptures teach, when justice is done, it is a joy to the righteous, but a terror to the evildoer. In God giving us his law, he shows us who he is, what he forbids, and what brings honor to his name. Ultimately, he shows us justice. Let me demonstrate this by way of the sixth commandment. We've already kind of considered this by way of the tenth commandment this morning and the law gospel portion of your guys' liturgy, but we can consider this by way of the sixth word as well. God says in his sixth word, you shall not murder, thou shall not murder. He forbids the unlawful taking of another life, period. The unlawful taking of another life, period. He calls this sin. Since from the very beginning, murder has been present in the heart of man. Brother murdering brother, post-fall. Women murdering men. Parents murdering babies. And all of these things, God hates it. Every single aspect of, of of the violation of this law. Murder ruins justice when we think about it. It makes man out to be wiser than God, which is absolutely disgraceful. But the precept extends further than just the external act, as we know by the revelation of the New Testament. The the sixth commandment is not just an external act by taking, taking the life unjustly of another person. The Lord Jesus tells us when we look at our brother or sister with anger in our heart that we have committed murder against them. So as the New Testament blows the law of God up really and elaborates on it by the words of our, of our Messiah, we realize, well, I haven't publicly executed anybody like, for example, Saul or someone like that, but I have definitely looked at many people with anger in my heart And therefore, I have fallen short with regards to this commandment. Meaning, in some sense, we've all broken this law. Further, the sixth commandment tells us that God loves life and preserves life. That's that's what the, the sixth commandment tells us positively about God. He hates murder. Why? Because he's not a murderer. Because he's infinitely just. And murder is a violation of justice. He creates, he preserves, he makes new, he makes whole. God doesn't unjustly take life away as there is no injustice in God. Again, he is the infinite benefactor. He's the fount of every blessing. There's no darkness in him. Therefore, this this idea of murder or anything of that sort is foreign to God. He is pure. He hates murder and punishes it accordingly. And lastly, this commandment is one uh, that, that requires severe punishment when the external act is violated. We think of uh, what, what Genesis 9 tells us uh, with regards to the punishment and murder. God says, whoever sheds man's blood, by man his blood shall be shed. For in the image of God he made man. This is why our country adopts something like the death penalty. Because the scriptures tell us, you murder somebody... What you rightly deserve, proper justice, when you, when you commit this external act of sin, is death. And this really hits home for us. 
Specifically, when we think of our nation and the, 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 the corporate national sins that our nation is guilty of with regards to the Sixth Commandment, we think of, uh, of murder in relation to something like abortion, for example, and how our country has, has, has been defined by the murder of the unborn for many, many, many years. Therefore, we can conclude, at least in this aspect, that we have fallen short with regards to justice here. So what does it look like for us then, in the pews, hearing the word, to do justly in this context? Well, the 24th proverb, for example, tells us to deliver those who are drawn to death and hold back those who are stumbling to the slaughter. That would mean we recognize abortion as murder for starters, is the first, the first uh, correct step towards doing any kind of justice is recognizing what God's law says and treating it as such. But then we don't stop here. It's not good enough. Again, God is calling us to an action. It's not just, it's not good enough to merely recognize that something is the case. But we are called to put our faith into practice. Therefore, we practically do things like pray, like seek to minister to those who are considering abortion, like call for proper justice with regards to those who are openly and willfully engaging in such sin. Properly honor the law being violated. Again, was this not the case with our Lord, who was the epitome of justice, who was, who was the one who has justice as the very foundation of his throne? So while the law reveals to us the goodness of God showing forth his justice, we see the greatest example of this revelation found in Christ. He, after all, is really our example of what it means to do justly. So this first point where we, where we consider Micah, uh, the prophet, talking about the need for man to do justly, we must look at the ultimate example of justice itself, who is Christ. The law only gets us so far. The law tells us what we need to do. The law tells us, it reveals to us the holiness of God and the sinfulness of man. The Lord Jesus Christ gives us the living example of justice. The living example of Christ-like justice. This means while we meditate on something like the Sixth Commandment, we ought to consider, yes, this commandment is good. Yes, it shows, it shows forth the justice of God as it relates to those made in his image in this context. Yet we realize that we have fallen short here. Yet we realize that we too have violated this commandment. Yet all those in Christ know that we don't stop there. We look to the one who has fulfilled this commandment and we look to him and him alone. The chief end of our obedience to God's requirements set forth in the Holy Scriptures must be found in Christ. Must be found in Christ. Second, the text tells us that God calls us to love mercy. To love mercy. This is an interesting point. As the text does not say to be merciful, although there would be nothing wrong with being merciful as we are called to be merciful. But the text here says to love 
mercy. As imitators of God, we are to seek to do as God does insofar that we are able. Insofar that we are able. I'm going to repeat that. As imitators of God, we are to seek to do as God does insofar that we are able to do so. And that is a really, really the summary of this first point. This can only be done through Christ who strengthens us. To love mercy, to do justly. In the similar vein, if we are to love how God loves, we must start and end with Him. We are to imitate our Lord this way. He is the one who says, Blessed are the merciful, for they shall obtain mercy. In other words, blessed are those that love mercy. Again, like goodness. You know, a sister came up to me after this uh, service and mentioned, you know, it is true the way we use the word good and the way that we describe things that are good are, are so they're so limited in terms of how we even view them and understand them. But when we talk about God and we talk about God being good, we are talking from a finite perspective about one that is infinitely good. In another, in a, in, in, in a way, we're only scratching the surface when it comes to th- that goodness as well. Well, likewise here, when it comes to mercy, it's a really interesting thing with regards to the creature as naturally mercy is not something that comes easy to us. Naturally speaking, we are not merciful creatures. The natural man is actually very much concerned with himself and oftentimes is only concerned with himself. We don't have a natural inclination to be merciful to our neighbor. Maybe even at best, the natural man may care about someone, but that that someone may have a family relationship or they may be receiving something from that person. So their care, their act of love is really conditional ultimately. Well, both of these positions are contrary to the Christian position. Mercy is not this self-centered, self-serving act that fulfills some kind of hole in the, in man or or fill some uh, some kind of void that thereby brings glory to man. On the contrary, church, when we are to think of mercy, we know that mercy is the complete opposite of this. As God has shown mercy to us, and that while we were dead in our sin, Christ dies for us. What's interesting with regards to the mercy mentioned in this congregation, or mentioned in this text congregation, is that This word used for mercy, to love mercy, is the same word we see time and time again in the Old Testament, specifically in places like the book of Ruth, to describe God's covenantal love from himself to those who have received him by faith. This mercy, in other words, is likened to God's love towards the sinner who is dead in their sin. It brought to Christ by faith. So we are to love. This is the expectation God has for us in this text. We are to love like Him. We are to show forth a love that is likened to the love that we have in redemption. Therefore, we must consider just a few 
preconditions, a few necessary factors to this love, humanly speaking. Because as, as God gives forth this expectation, the reality is none of us can fulfill it. Just like none of us can do good in light of what God has shown us to be good apart from Him. No, none of us can, can do justly apart from Him. And none of us can love mercy apart from Him. Therefore, we are to be like Him. We are to be patient. In this, in, in this call to love mercy, we are to first and foremost be patient. What, what is the, the love, who is the love being shown to? A fellow sinner. So that would right off the bat necessitate patience because we know as, as those who battle with lingering sin, there are times where we are not uh, proper recipients of mercy, where we do things to our neighbor that, that really demand the, the things that are opposite of mercy. We show, we show uh, wickedness to our neighbor. We deceive our neighbor. We lie to our neighbor time and time again. And the last thing that we deserve is mercy. Nonetheless, God bestows it upon us. Therefore, we are to likewise be merciful to others and love mercy when it comes to our neighbor. This would necessitate patience as we are dealing with another sinner. Secondly, it would necessitate compassion. When we think of of, uh, the need to love mercy that God requires of us, We are to think of the compassion that God has for sinners like us. And we know by way of lamentations that his compassion for us fails not. Therefore, when we are to show mercy to our neighbor, we are to have the utmost compassion for him or her. We are to be like God in seeking to be compassionate to those whom we are merciful to. And thirdly, we are to be long-suffering as God is long-suffering to us, as He is patient with us, as His compassion fails not when it comes to us, as He is long-suffering when it comes to sinners like you and I. We too must show mercy to our neighbor. And in, in, in the, even the thought of being merciful to another sinner, we must go into it knowing, like we need to be patient, like we need to be compassionate, that we will need to be long-suffering. Congregation, in closing this second point, we ought to love mercy as it has been freely given to us in Christ. We ought to love mercy as it has been freely given to us in Christ. This is where mercy is found. This is where mercy is understood. And this is where mercy is received on the cross. When we consider the cross congregation, we see the patience, compassion, and long-suffering of God summarized in one act of absolute charity. We see, when we look at the cross, we see God's patience, his compassion, and his long-suffering suffering love towards sinners like you and I. We see mercy. We are to look at that as our standard when we are to be merciful to our neighbor. 
As we were in great need of mercy and in the proper time, God bestowed it upon us. We too likewise must want the same for those near us. If we do, this third point will be looked at as an absolute honor and privilege. If we are recipients of God's mercy and are therefore merciful in light of that which we received, this third point, this closing part of the text, will be something that we absolutely embrace. And this third point is this, that God has called us to walk humbly before Him. You see, the first two points summarized the second table of the law. The first two points summarize the second table of the law, ultimately. We are dealing with man's relation to fellow man. We are to seek justice for our neighbor. We are to do justly before our neighbor. We are to want proper justice for our neighbor. Mercy. We are to seek mercy for our neighbor. We are to point our neighbor to the one who is merciful. And we are to do so knowing that we're dealing with a fellow sinner. Yet to walk humbly before the Lord, I believe the prophet now is pointing us to the first table of the law here. I believe this passage now deals with our reasonable service before the Lord in light of that which is he, he has commanded in worship. This third and final point is actually, I think, part of this passage that, that deserves the most consideration and meditation. The Apostle Paul, in his letter to the Hebrews, uses the metaphor of running the race to describe the Christian's pilgrimage on earth. And he does, the Apostle Paul actually does this in multiple places in Scripture. He does it in Colossians as well. He uses similar language throughout his epistles. And he is right. He is right. The Christian uh, pilgrimage on this earth, the Christian walk is in absolutely every way, shape, or form a race. It's a walk. But it's not a sprint. The apostle never tells us that the Christian walk is a sprint. He says it's a walk. He says it's a race. Not all races are sprints. We know this. I think many of the older saints in this congregation and in my congregation as well can attest that the Christian life is most certainly not a sprint. And, and we're thankful it's not a sprint because quite often we fall on our faces and are in need of God's grace, His goodness that leads us to repentance. His goodness that leads us to repentance, just an FYI there. Thankfully, it's a walk because we fall time and time again and it's much better to get up from a fall when you're walking than when you are sprinting. A fall when you're sprinting can destroy you. Our Christ, the Christian walk is, is exactly that. And thanks be to God that when we do fall, He is there as a faithful, loving Father to pick His children up. It's a reminder that we are walking before Him and He is with us. So what is our duty to God in light of this? Well, congregation, we worship Him in spirit and truth. 
This is what God requires of you. This is your great responsibility. It's what require, what He requires of me. As we walk with the Lord, we worship Him and Him alone. And His worship must be at the forefront of our mind. That's why it's kind of confusing that Micah doesn't start with this. He starts with this, the obligation that we have to, to man. And contextually, that makes sense. Nonetheless, here to walk before Him is to consider the first table of the law at the forefront of our mind. God is glorified by our reasonable service to fellow man, and when done according to his will, we understand this is done in light of the first table. Therefore, when we read in this exhortation to to walk with the Lord, to walk humbly before him, it would be wise for us to consider the first four words of his law. We ought to first think, one, that we have no other gods before the one true God, before Jehovah. This means we are to avoid idolatry or having worship of more gods than one or or uh, to, to create idols in our hearts and serve them and worship them and, and, and do those kinds of things. These are all... These are all forbidden by way of the first word. But it's even, it's even further than just this, this uh, building of an idol with physical goods like we see in the old economy or even in the new economy. It's even further. It's the idolatry that comes by way of self-love in our society today. It's the idolatry that comes behind the way of, of, of everyone needing an opinion and everyone's opinion mattering concerning the things of the Lord. It's the idolatry behind cardinal security that we see in our, in our society today. It's the idolatry behind the embracing of heresy. To walk humbly before the Lord is to avoid all of these things. It's the religious worship due to other creatures that, that many people think is, is biblical. It's, it's absolutely horrendous. It's idolatry. Therefore, to walk before the Lord humbly with regards to the first table means we are to embrace knowing that God is God and He is deserving of worship in Him alone. Meditating on the things concerning His Word. Remembering what He has done in redemption. Honoring Him. Loving Him. Fearing Him. Believing in Him. That is walking humbly before Him. And likewise, we are to take this same mindset into the remaining three commandments of the first table. To walk before the Lord is to consider our religious worship on the Lord's Day even. Are we worshiping God in spirit and in truth? Or are we worshiping Him in a way that we think is wise? You see, congregation, this is the big, one of the biggest problems in the church today. The failed application of God's second commandment concerning the worship due unto His name. Many churches essentially are putting different kind of things before God's people to get their attention. Even calling these things a means of worship when the reality is God already commands us how to worship, commands of us what He requires of worship and it is found by way of His second commandment. 
Our worship is to be regulated by the word of God. Therefore, to walk humbly before him is to consider the worship due unto his name. We consider him and him alone as our only God, as the one true God. Secondly, we consider the worship due unto his name. Thirdly, as we walk humbly before him, we consider the name itself, that revered name, the the third word. And we know not to take this name in vain. We know to keep this name holy. And then finally, oh, the fourth, the blessed Sabbath. Congregation, to walk humbly with the Lord has everything to do with the fourth commandment and the Lord's day. There, there is no such thing as walking humbly before the Lord while violating his Sabbath. There's just like there's no such thing as walking humbly before the Lord and professing the name of Baal or Asheroth or another god or, or, or worshiping him in a manner contrary to his, to his word. All these vain innovations, these things of men brought into worship, those are wicked. You cannot walk humbly before the Lord and sin against him in worship. This is exactly the case with the fourth commandment. Many believe today they are walking before the Lord. They are, they are presenting their bodies a living sacrifice while they're staying at home on the Lord's Day playing video games and watching football. God knows nothing of this. It's not what he calls of us. He calls of us to walk humbly before him, meaning we have a relationship with him and we know what that relationship entails. We've considered what it entails regarding our, our obligation before other men, but more importantly is our obligation before Jehovah. So just in closing, there are two points of contemplation. There are really two points to consider this morning. In light of what Micah makes clear in the word, these are things that I ask my congregation, but prior congregation, prior to asking each other, these are things that I have to ask myself. And I would commend you to do the same thing. And I know your pastor would agree here. The first point of contemplation is this. Are you living your life according to the word of God? It's, this is simple. This is straight to the point. Like Both the first and the second table that we've discussed and the revelation of God's goodness has us time and time again coming back to the revealed will. Has us time and time again coming back to what he's written to us in his word. If that's God's standard of how we are to live, found in his word, are we operating in such a manner? Are we going back to the word of God and living our life accordingly? Or, because there is an or here, or are we living according to something else? You see, there is no standard of justice given to us outside the scriptures. There is no standard of mercy given to us that we may understand outside the Holy Scriptures. And likewise, the way we know how to worship God and walk humbly before him is by way of his word. If you are not living in light of this, you are living by something else. And that foundation is sinking sand. You will die. Guaranteed. I tell this to my congregation. I've I've mentioned it last Lord's Day. 
uh, when I was preaching on, on church membership, there is this concept of the renegade, rogue Christian that has his own agenda and knows what, how he needs to live his Christian life contrary to the local church is absolutely foreign to the New Testament. The Bible doesn't know of that. The Bible doesn't know of the renegade, rogue Christian, non-member of a church doing things his own way. Knows nothing of that. Neither should we. The second uh, point of contemplation for us to consider, and um, and I say this with a little bit of a chuckle because I know we, you know, we're, we're very much uh, committed to our doctrine and and think of thinking of these high highly theological concepts and getting at times involved in the weeds of discussion. Um, but we, I think, need to stop and ask ourselves. Uh, and right now would be a good time to do it. Are we enjoying God? That's the second point of contemplation. Are we really enjoying God? To walk with Him, uh, to walk with Him is implying there's a relationship. And this is the relationship where we have our source of joy, where we have our, our source of goodness, where we have our source of delight. We can be saying all these things about God as true as they are, um, but if we're not enjoying Him, what's what's the purpose? What does it really matter? So are we enjoying, in light of what God commands of us, what He calls of us, uh, His revelation of Himself, are we delighting in Him? Are we enjoying Him? Um, is He our portion? Are we excited to hear Him speak to us on the Lord's Day? Are we thankful for his church? And are we reminded of him by way of the means of grace? Are we truly partakers of him? That's, that's another way of asking that. Let's go ahead and pray, congregation. Lord, we come before you once again, giving you thanks for this Lord's Day. Uh, Lord, we do thank you for the preaching of your word for the ministry of your word as it goes forth and continues to encourage us, continues to be used by your spirit that we may grow in the grace and knowledge of our Savior and truly enjoy him, knowing, Lord, that our salvation is in your hands, knowing, Lord, that you have not only given us everything that we need in Christ, but you continue to provide for all of our needs as pilgrims sojourning this earth. Lord, we are so thankful that we can worship you, hear your word, and sing your praises once again this Lord's Day. Continue to be with us as we enjoy private worship due to your name, as we continue to sing your praises this afternoon. And all of these things, we give you thanks. In Jesus' name, amen.